When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Good morning, Ned. Ciao, Davide. Where are you? I'm at the foot of the Zonkalan, where the clouds meet the sky, meet the rock, meet the... Oh, whatever. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the roads were closed. Do you really want to know what the weather's going to do in a far-flung corner of Europe? Why? Whatever I say now, it'll be old, old news as soon as I've said it. I mean, we're all tiny mice treading the steps of an infinite wheel lit by the afterglow of dying stars. It's 6.29. Here's The Rhythm of the Night by Debarge. The Never Strays Farfalle, Giro d'Italia morning special, is brought to you by Chapter 3 and The Roadbook. Chapter 3 was created by you, David Miller, in 2015 with the vision of creating cycling clothing that you would wear as a retired racer. Now for 2021, Chapter 3 have made cycling kit to meet you wherever your ride takes you. They're calling it Most Days. It launches in only a couple of weeks' time, so make sure you sign up via the link in the show notes to get access before anyone else does. In 2018, Ned and a team of dedicated enthusiasts delivered the inaugural edition of the Roadbook Cycling Almanac, an annual publication supplying day, essays, and anecdotes from the racing calendar. The Roadbook 2020 and past editions have become the definitive companion of any fan of the sport. To be the first to hear about limited pre-order runs for future products and exclusive promotions, sign up via the link in the show notes. I sense you an ennui, Ned. Yeah, there's a little bit of ennui this morning, David. I'll, 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 be, I'll be completely honest. And I've just woken up from another dream as well. Oh, pray tell. Well, it's not, it's not got any, anything like the heft and drama of the last one. So I don't think there's a great deal to go on. And it's unlike the last one, which had a very clear kind of narrative arc, didn't it? And, and it did, yeah. told a story almost from start to finish. This was one of those dreams that were just a snapshot yeah mm. just a, f- a fleeting image almost um and all i can tell you about it is that i was in a rush trying to leave a stage finish area of the giro d'italia to get into a car ahead of a 4 hour transfer so this is very much taken from real life yeah. and and we were passing it's actually i was with matt rendell and we were passing by 
uh, it felt like we were kind of walking through the corridors of a municipal building, possibly a school or a polytechnic or a university, in which it struck me a lot of the teams had been housed for the night. Mm. Um, and it was only as we were walking through the corridors towards wherever the car was that we were rushing towards that I kind of dimly realised that we hadn't got any food for the journey and that you know, by the time we got to the hotel, it would be at half past 10 at night and that we, we wouldn't be able to eat dinner that mm. evening. But we passed by the window to a, a big function room and we could quite clearly see a De Kerning Quickstep eating from a hot buffet. Ah. Yeah. The, the staff and the riders. And um, I thought, I thought, I wonder if I can catch the eye of Davide Bramati. I'm picturing you as like little street urchins in Dickensian London peering through a window at some aristocrats well, well, dining finely. Well, that was it. But, but I, didn't, um, I didn't quite dare sort of knock on the glass or, try, or even go through the door. But I, so I was just dimly hoping that Br- Bramati for some... I don't know why oh, Bramati. Bramati in particular. Yeah, that he would, he would look across and just kind of realise what the situation was and just suddenly appear with a big plate of sort of hot pasta. Um, but it, Matt, Matt just took over at that point and uh, said, oh, don't worry. He just kind of took pity on me. He said, he said I'll get Ilio. So Ilio... So he, he just went in after Ilio Kesa to go and sort it and get, get Ilio Kesa to bring us some food out. And then the alarm went off and I woke up. Did you wake up hungry, Ned? Yeah, I'm hungry now, David. This was a lot, lot simpler to decode than the last one. Okay, go on. You're hungry. That might be, that might and, be as simple as that. And you know that there's only one team that is reliable, that you trust, and it's to turn a quick step to, to stave off that hunger. And perhaps that hunger, perhaps it's not just a physical hunger, it's an emotional hunger. And you want to join what, a so team it's... of winners. And we're going okay. back to sort of deep insecurity. And this is a sort of, oh. it's, it's a more subtle imposter syndrome. The fact that you were looking in, and you were in a polytechnic or a college, so you're yeah. in a school of learning, and yeah. but you felt like an outsider within it. Yeah. Um, and but the Bramati bits got me stuck because you. Why would you think of Bramati as being a a figure? It's I mean it to support Giro, Giro d'Italia. Giro yeah, d'Italia. Bramati's sort of person that will probably throw pasta at the window at you and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh well. I quite, I quite wish you'd stopped at um. It's this is quite simple, Ned. You're hungry, but you didn't just, you didn't stop there. You had to you had to pick away at the scab. Uh, well. That was my imposter syndrome, <laughs> didn't you? But I, I think it's interesting. You do raise a good point. Why do Kernick Quickstep? Yeah, why do Kernick Quickstep? It could have been Androni Giocattoli, couldn't it? Or EF. They, I mean, they've given us a ride in a bus before. You know, they that's have. a safe place. <laughs> they have. I sat next to Pierre Roland. <laughs> You've got a picture of me and Pierre, Oh, you, I need to phone. find it. I'll try and find Put it. Put it in the show notes. I will. Yeah. Oh, that's a classic. Um, so, yeah. Oh, I'm well. in the mountains. Hey, listen. Listen. Can you hear? Oh, yeah, can you I can hear, hear this? the bells. Listen, let me just... No, I'll just... Listen. It's 
It's pretty cool, isn't it? Dolomiti. That is pretty cool. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be as chatty as I was yesterday, Ned. What was going on with you yesterday? You were so chatty, David. What was going on? Because I slept terribly. So I don't think I ever kind of, I felt like I was awake all night and dreams. And so I kind of woke up as if I hadn't been to sleep. And then, because even then when I I left the pod and I went to to join the family for breakfast and I was like man I, f- I feel much better when I don't sleep well and then I was asleep. that weird. evening at 8pm I was passed out on the sofa so it didn't last all day <laughs> <laughs> and then even this morning I was like woke up at 6.30 and was like oh god I've got to get up yeah so well yeah. you were properly kind of you were chiming in <sighs> with the opinions some mm. of them surprisingly strongly felt I thought you know there was I thought you were quite dismissive yesterday about Norfolk randomly well, you know, I was th- listening back it made me laugh you said, <laughs> said why would I want to go to Norfolk why, why would I want to do that <laughs> oh by the way we got I got specifically really quite taken to task with some of the floating facts yesterday oh, really? about what? Um, like what oh geo- Geology, you know, the, the evolution oh of the planet, should, you know, geology, and all that sort of thing. Geology is always, considering it's a rock, yeah. it's it's thin ice for us. Geology. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I was I was specifically wrong about um, the notion that the British Isles floated away from Europe, kind of Brexit, <laughs> Brexit style. You know, I, I was I was wrong about that. It's not quite how it happened. Uh. Um, at the end of the Ice Age. So no, during the Ice Age, we were actually East Anglia was was basically where it was, and it was joined to the mainland. Though it was all land, and mm. then it became ocean. I so just just, of, just just let but, it go, Ned. I think it's, I just feel that I was so far off that I just need to correct this okay. if I may. You may go for it. Um, uh, you've heard on the perhaps on the Radio Four shipping forecast of um, Dogger and German Bite. Yeah, I listen to it daily, Ned. Yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're to the so Dogger Bank is basically in the middle of the North Sea. It was pointed out to me is is really quite shallow, um, and that's because that that bit of sea. I'm out of my depth again. I told you, don't, I'm bailing out. I'm bailing out. But the the jury's the jury's out about my eels fact because I think that is kind of kind I of think right, they're, they're, kind of correct, like yep. kind of prehistoric. Yeah. I guess Again, most, I animal, think we guess just, most we animals are prehistoric, out. to be fair. Yeah. Um, What's the most recently involved animal? Like, you know, Pete Kenyuk's newer humans thing. He's talking about the speeding up of evolution. I mean, What's dogs, the most right? recent animal? I mean, because we've domesticated those in the last few thousand years. It, <laughs> I, I get really this, confused about... Yeah, I don't know. I, I, falcons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of animals we domesticated. Let's leave that let's to the talk audience. About, should we talk about um, cycling? Yeah, let's talk about yesterday. So, so was it as I, I was once again was flat out very occupied yesterday and it wasn't a stage that right. I even put. Actually, no, I did put it on the background bit, but then it was just like, why? Um, but it was, well, um, was it hard commentating on it? Yeah, I mean, I joked, I joked with, um, I joked with Matt on, on WhatsApp. This is kind of high level humor, really, but I, I joked with Matt Rendell on, on, um, on WhatsApp before the race got underway. Cause Matt, I think, have I explained Matt's, Matt's doing the yes, Giro d'Italia yeah. updates? Yeah. Which, well, if you go and look at the official Giro d'Italia sort of feed and get the updates, you, one, once I've, ha- you've had it explained to you, like I've just done that Matt Rendell's doing them, you'll totally understand. So cool. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they're absolutely they're absolutely amazing, um, but uh, yeah, I joke with him that you know I was looking forward to commentating for 180 kilometers over pictures of Umberto Marengo's backside. That was my that was my joke, and I meant it as a joke. 
but in fact it turned out to be un- uncannily accurate because Umberto Marengo was the first rider to attack with Samuele Rivi, which I could have guessed if I'd stopped and bothered to think about it from Aeolo Cometa. Then there was a slight pause of about 10 seconds as we looked to the back of the peloton. This is after the flag dropped. And I said out loud on air, I said, and uh, be surprised if Simon Pello from Androni Giocattoli doesn't come and join them, at which point Simon Pello from Androni Giocattoli came and joined them. And that was that. Ugh. And actually, he got a, it took him about 10 seconds to get across. And as he joined them, Samuele Rivi actually laughed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, that, and that was that, because you could not have drawn up a more predictable threesome than that. Um, <sighs> and I've got nothing else to say about the stage. I mean, it was staggeringly dull. Oh. Staggeringly dull. But they have to exist. Um, I mean, they, those stages, well, every what, stage what, can't why? be amazing. Uh, well, one, it's logistics, because the race does have to it relies on towns wanting it to come so sometimes to get from one of those towns to another the terrain isn't exciting um so that's the very nature plus they need to put stages in as well that aren't incredibly physically demanding all the time or it tends to neutralize the race uh, in the sense i think we've often seen it once the race becomes too hard then the peloton kind of of its own will will just shut down and even if it's a beautiful stage, it won't race <clears throat> or barely race as well as it could have done. So by having the logistics kind of from finances of the race uh, force it to sometimes take these routes, which are not conducive to amazing bike racing and are flat and boring and on on roads that, that just should should exist only for cars. And then there's also the fact that They've just got to get from point to point. It is a grand tour. It's got a, there's a lot of Italy. Not all of Italy is perfect for bike racing. And then again, it sets the race up to race hard on the following days and recover from the former. So, so there it's is a necessity. So it's a kind of necessary. Yeah, mm-hmm. there is a necessity. I suppose, I suppose it is true. I mean, if they, I mean, we had to, so if you, if you say, if you'd taken the decision, okay, let's just go straight from, um, Bagno di Domania and the next stage is the Zonkaland stage. And you kind of eliminate stage 13 yesterday, you'd still have to get to the Zonkalan. You'd yeah. have to get to the Dolomites. And so you can either ride a big chunk of that and turn it into a stage or force the riders to sit on a bus for seven hours. Yeah, exactly. And it, I suppose it's a, it is actually as simple as that, isn't it? And they'd hate that. They'd hate that. Yeah, they're not going to um, win. I mean, a lot of the riders were a bit bored yesterday, but it is a, a welcome bit of respite, <clears throat> especially after when you look at the days they'd had previously. And the, as you said, the days upcoming now, it's, um, it needs to happen. And um, yeah, because otherwise it would, it would just, it would get boring because the pedestal would have to just conserve its energy, even on the tough racing days. <clears throat> Do you know what? There was, um, a brief flurry of action for about two or three minutes in the middle of yesterday's stage, actually in the last two thirds when they passed through the second intermediate sprint um, that was determined by the least important of the tremendously unimportant secondary competitions on the Giro d'Italia that had me rattling through the regulations book to find out what on earth was going on. Um, Because there are, so there is the general, we talked about general classification, points classification, king of the mountains classification, white jersey classification, and the team's classification. Plus there is also the super team, which is slightly different on the day. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then there is, and this is why Simon Pello and Umberto 
Ek, uh, Umberto, um, Umberto Umberto Marengo were up the road. <laughs> Umberto Eco, yeah, that was quite interesting. <laughs> Umberto Eco, Marengo was up the road uh, with his backside. Um, they were competing for both the intermediate sprints competition, which is a kind of daily prize, if you like, plus also an overall GC. And they accrue separate points at both intermediate sprints in that competition. So they were fighting for, for, for that. Plus, they were also competing for the Fuga Bianchi, which is the overall leader for the n- number of kilometers you've been off the front, which is itself quite hard to determine because when there's a breakaway, a breakaway, well, you have to be at the front of the race, off the front for a total of five kilometers before it even counts as a breakaway. And then you start totting up your kilometers. I did not know there. that. <clears throat> um, and then there was another one that I'd, I'd really just, I'd only had a cursory glance at because I didn't realize it was actually a points system. Um, I thought it was discretionary until I drilled down a bit deeper um, called the combativity prize or the, the fighting way. I think it's been the translated as way. The, the fighting way or something. And, um, they actually accord points for that at so it's like you were talking about the combination jersey it's a got a hint of that so there are points for the fighting way which you accrue at the finish lines at all the king of the mountains and all the intermediate sprints and depending on just to make it even more complicated depending on the coefficient of the stage whether it's deemed to be a category a b c or d stage depending on its difficulty so yesterday was category a today's category d or something like that um there are a variety of different numbers of points and not only different numbers of points accrued but the number of placings at each sprint point or line which are accorded points <laughs> jesus it's, it's like you have to have a beautiful so mind there were three men up the road there were three men up the road yesterday and from the bunch emerged when they, they got close to the second second intermediate sprint, emerged the Belgian national champion, Dries de Bont, who sprinted for fourth place across the line, right? Now, he's not interested in the intermediate sprint standings. He's not interested in the... Uh, he wasn't interested in bonus seconds. Uh, so I was looking, was he, was he interested in cash? You know, because there's a small prize for that. And actually, no, there was no cash prize for finishing fourth. So I'm really scratching my head and thinking, what's he doing? And then I discovered that he picked up two points in the fighting way competition. So he's now, he is at the moment leading the fighting prize. But because he did that, because he did that sprint, De Ghent went after him, right? Because they, they'd been riding at the front all day uh, at the beginning, having a good old natter and they're clearly really good mates. And Thomas De Ghent decided to kind of, Sprint against him for no reason. Just for fun. And, um, just for fun. And because De Gent went, De Gent then went through the line and picked up fifth place and then carried on and took with him a group of half a dozen other riders from different teams. And they, uh, suddenly, as they came out of the village where the sprint was, there was a little group off the front and they all got strung out and there was a cross tailwind. Wow. And it could have developed into something. It was really quite a strong wind and it was perfectly from the perfect sort of angle as well. And just for a moment, you thought out of nowhere, because of Dries de Bont's attack, we might have a bike race. And? Uh, we didn't. Oh, uh, okay. But that kept you occupied, but, did it? Well, it was something, mate. I was kind of lost but in there. It, I kind of couldn't really... Uh, 
you know in those episodes of Snoopy where the teacher just kind of warbles on? <clears throat> yep. That kind of felt a bit like that. You're trying to describe that competition. There was no, I couldn't, there was no shortcut way of doing it, David. I know it's, it was long-winded, and, but I couldn't have summarised it any more concisely <coughs> than I did. Oh, you did? I, without I, it. Did, did you even it know that? literally all about. I don't understand it still. Don't it do it would, again. No, I, okay, I won't do it again. But I, <laughs> but it's literally about the detail because unless I'd gone into as much detail as I did, it wouldn't have made sense, even though it didn't make sense. But it's quite possible that Dries so, de Bont and Alpha Synthenix are the only team on the race who even actually know, know what's going on in that competition. No, it exists. And so is there any um, physical manifest- manifestation of this competition? Well, yeah. You mean like a jersey yeah. or a special dossard or yeah. anything like that? As far as I know, absolutely no. And they don't appear, They don't. it doesn't seem to have a sponsor and they don't appear on the podium at the end of the day. And there's no, I don't think there's a cash prize associated with it either. I think it's just for the honour. <laughs> uh, this is actually incredible, isn't it? It's, it's, it's at, the most bike-releasing thing ever. I think it's amazing. <laughs> it's a- actually incredible. I love that. But anyway, oh well. but there was a big, there was a big, pr- there was a big incentive to win the stage for Giacomo Nizzolo. Finally, David, Fine. to get his. Uh, he finally did it after his, um, he's been, he was the, I read this, this amazing stat, you'll know this stat, or you've probably got it in the road book. Yep. He's the, this was up to that point, the rider with the most ever podium places and grand tour stages without a win. Yeah. Yeah. 11, 11 times he was second at the Giro in bunch sprints prior to yesterday. That's wild. And, um, it was brilliant as well, his sprint, to be fair. It was, it was amazing because uh, Jumbo Visma pulled a, pulled a surprise move. Um, everyone thought they'd just lead out Dylan Grunewagen. It was a long, straight, perfect finish for D- Dylan Grunewagen. But his lead out man, or one of his lead out men, excuse me, Eduardo Affini, just found, found himself on the front with a gap, a few hundred metres to go, and just carried on. Hmm. And just went, opened up a gap. Daniel Oss uh, pulled the pin and couldn't go with him, and a gap opened up. And Nitsolo had to react from a long way back. And he surfed the wheels, first briefly of Fernando Gaviria, then shot across a gap to Affini, pulled over to the right-hand side of the road, and got in his slipstream for a fraction of a second before going again and out-sprinting him to the line. Was it, it, was, um, it was an amazing sprint, actually. Was it unbridled joy from Nitsolo, or was it shock? It and- was... It- no, it was lovely. He does seem to be a really nice guy. I've never met him, I don't think. I'm amazed you haven't because, met him. Well, because the advent of his career really kind of coincides with me switching from switching roles from interviewing uh, riders to shouting their names out very loud, sitting next to you. Yeah. Um, so, But he does come across as a really nice guy, uh, Giacomo Nizzolo. So I think we could all... We could all get behind that, really. We all get behind that. <clears throat> and yeah, did you get, managed yeah. to get any um, tourism done Verona yesterday? Were you motivated by our talk of Shakespeare? Or did you just... A little bit. I borrowed um, Matt Stevens's riding around with a Chapter 3 Brompton, David. Oh, lovely. I see that a lot, actually. And I'm, like a number one Yeah. Band. Great. Yeah, he's active on the socials, isn't he? So, um, um, but, yeah, so he, and that for, yeah, he let me... He went out quite early in the morning. You know, yesterday morning we woke up in a kind of industrial estate yes. on the outskirts of Verona. Well, we were hemmed in on one side by the river and on another side by a motorway. So it's quite difficult to find a way out on the bike. But Matt uh, went out quite early in the morning to find 
to go and you know do some exercise actually wearing lycra and a helmet and everything on his Brompton couldn't find a way out of this kind of couldn't find a way out of where we were sort of trapped Um, and so he ended up he was telling me he ended up doing sprint reps in an industrial estate on a folding bike wearing lycra he's a legend I mean literally doing kind of 800 meter sprints stopping turning around and going back again and doing 800 meter sprints Sort of oh, thing. Wow. He did them ten times. That's insane. What a- and then he and then he gave me the bike, and I r- tried to ride into Verona, which was only about ten k, but took me <laughs> about an hour and a half because I just kept getting lost. Um, but I rode past the old amphitheatre, the amazing Roman arena, where they uh, where Richard Carapaz won the Giro, and Chad oh, Hager, well, yeah. our friend, Chad Hager. won the ti- the final time trial Party in twenty nineteen. Yeah. And um and I saw at a distance Juliet's balcony in Verona, which is I mean it's kind of tragic really. I find it quite sad. Not because Juliet and Romeo not because Julia Juliet took Romeo out the back and it all went wrong for them. Mm. But I find it quite sad that Verona, this kind of venerable millennium old seat of learning and culture feels it necessary in the 21st century to market itself in such a manner that it relegates all the other kind of Renaissance splendor that it has to offer to to Juliet's balcony, which is its primary kind of tourist site. I was just, you know what I was just thinking as you were saying that imagine if you did a tourist guide with those sort of remarks on earpieces, you know, you can listen to those, those, recorded um audio guides of cities if you just went, hmm. did one that was just all your disappointment <laughs> what an honest one an honest one and here honest we have tourism. Juliet's balcony actually makes me feel yeah. quite sad but <laughs> so well, do you know good. what I mean though yeah I do do you know what I mean yeah yeah it's um because it's Shakespeare you know, again uh, hordes of tourists taking pictures <clears throat> and selfies yeah. in front of a a real balcony that has no attached history to it whatsoever. Yeah, it's just made up as well, isn't it? It's just like, it's, it's, just, 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 made, totally it's just a made, made up. up thing. At some point, the mayor of Verona has gone, look, this has got pretty big. We need yep. to do something about this. Uh, yeah. F- pick a balcony and we're going to have to say that's where it yeah. happened. Because do you know what happened, David? So the mayor of Verona, I reckon, went to a conference uh, with the mayor of London, Berlin, and Paris, and everything. they all got together. All the mayors they went to a big mayor conference, right? And they had a there must have been a, a, like a meeting about how to market yourself, yeah, online. Mm. And maybe they went into a little breakout room and a little smaller sprinter group. And Verona guy mayor got put in a room with Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. Uh-huh, yeah? yeah, a little brainstorming session. And, uh, yeah, a little brainstorming session. He's going, I don't know. You know, we, that's oh, a terrible accent. But the, the, Ver- the Verona mayor is probably saying, you know, we're a bit, we're a bit stuck in a rut. We keep showing the amphitheater. And the problem with that is there's other, there's Rome with the Colosseum and then there's Nîmes in France. You should do the you know, mayor is like some- Scouser, Verona. <laughs> 
scouts mayor of Verona. Yeah. I'll leave that to Rendalera yeah. and the rest of them. But yeah, he, he obviously thought, I'm just, you know, there's too many big hitters in the in the amphitheatre market and we're not punching our weight. No, we need to, we've got to find and, our own niche. At which point Sadiq Khan, we've got to find our own niche. And at which point Sadiq Khan, because it was a brainstorming session, said, have you got anything else identifiably different a bit? Because in London, right, we've not got the tallest building in the world or the most beautiful river in the world, but we've got Harry Potter. Do you see what I'm going? So Sadiq Khan would have said, we've got a railway station called King's Cross and um, th- th- we've just decided to put in a fake pl- entry to platform nine and a half, um, which is features, you know, in Harry Potter, which is just a work of fiction. And it's the most popular visiting attraction now in all of London, if not all of the world, but it's completely made up and spurious and utterly bogus and totally uninteresting. Oh, it's not totally uninteresting. You, oh, it's completely uninteresting. Come on, if you're a kid, sorry, I've been reading. I'm like four books into reading Harry Potter to my kids. I mean, they totally love to uninteresting. Go and see it. No, totally uninteresting. The books are uninteresting. The spin-off products, oh, even more uninteresting. No, they're awful books. What are you talking about? They, I'm they getting get quite better. angry about that. Sorry, they get better. Do they? Well, you're reading to kids is worse than to read to my kids. I mean, it's pretty Bad. kind of the same thing over and over again. But most books are, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, uh, yeah. You think? <laughs> Platform nine and a half. But have you queued up? Would you, you know queue what? up London platform nine and a half? And London had kids. an advantage because they'd already monetized Paddington. Exactly. <laughs> so there was, you know, London's just entrepreneurial, isn't it? It's like, yeah, we've got to do yeah. something about but this. I, yeah. I think that's the genesis of the whole idea anyway. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. I like it. I like it. So mm. um, what we've got today, you know, get back onto bike racing, I suppose. Oh, it's horrible. To, well, today's the Zonkaland. So we're staying in, what's the name of this place? Ata Terme, at the foot of the hill. And I'm looking outside and it's absolutely sheeting with rain. Are we going to get the comedy um, moment of uh, people on the back of motorbikes carrying bikes? Eh? Isn't that what normally happens in Zonkaland? They don't put cars up there. You... Oh, yeah, you can't get cars up there. So, so I'm have, just, I'm so actually... They have the detour at the bottom. And then, like, I remember Bjorn Reese in the back of a motorbike carrying a bike once. Yeah, well, that, that, that's perfectly possible. It's worth saying from a, in a sporting context that uh, they're not going up the Zonkalan from the, on the normal side, actually. What? It's the slightly long... Yeah, it's not, the, it's not the normal side. It's a different ascent, and it's slightly longer, but not quite as insanely steep as the normal ascent. However, it's not without its tests. I mean, the final... Uh, just looking at now, the final three... The final three kilometres towards the top are an average of 13% over three kilometres. The entire climb itself is 14 kilometres long with an average gradient of 8.5%. And uh, within the final kilometre, it maxes out at 27%. Oh, come on. Yeah, I, I've yeah. done Zonkalon. Zonkalon's the only climb I've been at in a bike race where I was going so slow, my auto pause kept hitting in the Garmin. <laughs> Coming to a standstill, the, the, the satellites could no longer track me. That's what the Zonkalon wow. was like. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. It's a really, well, really it's hard climb. Brutal today. Yeah. Um, but and it's going to be. Gonna, but I, I, I do fear that the race. I do fear that the race might be a little bit like a mountainous, wet version of yesterday's race, to the mm. extent that I mean, how far have they got much, to the bottom? A, uh, it's a two hundred kilometer climb, Dave. Uh, route, oh, what's so it called? Race today. So, and there's not much. There's a little cat four bump and then a cat two climb quite away from the Zonkalan that they'll get over. But I don't think any, anything will happen there. So I think it'll just be wait, 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 Zonkalan. Mm, okay. I'm going to watch I that. I think so. 
Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to watch um, that. But it's in the Dolomites, and that's a, that's a highlight. So Dolomites are just lovely. Yeah, they're special. Although I don't, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I've no, I've, I don't know them very well. Been here, but this, I can remember. I only encountered them like about five or six years into my bike racing career, and I remember it. By that point, I'd been in the Alps, the Pyrenees, uh, Swiss Alps, Austrian, and then when I got to Dolomites, I was like, whoa. It was just yeah, that's so much. Totally. Just it was like the grandiosity of it all was just amazing. Yeah, it, they were truly are so different to all the other mountain ranges. It's pretty magical. Yeah, yeah. Hard. And in my mind, they're deeply bound up with um, a farewell to arms. Ernest Hemingway. Oh, yeah. Have you read that? You read any Hemingway? <laughs> I, I Do you like I've, Hemingway? I've, I've read um, Coming the Bell Tolls, and I've read. Uh, I can't remember. I haven't read Farewell to Arms, oddly. Um, I don't, yeah. I, oddly, um, I probably should be, but I'm not a huge fan of Hemingway, which I'll probably get smashed down for, but it just never really did it for me. Well, I think, I think, um, I don't, yeah, I've, I've just actually, since lockdown, in fact, over the last month or two, I've been on a bit of a, a journey with Ernest Hemingway, who's who's a writer. Oh, what did I read before that? I mean, I'd read A Farewell to Arms a good few years ago, and I reread it quite recently. And prior to that, I'd read, I mean, I think The Old Man and the Sea is an absolutely kind of wonderful book. And I'd really recommend that. If you're going to kind of start with Hemingway yeah. somewhere, maybe 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 I start with that. I think I started with Foot Food and the Bell Tolls, and I wasn't, didn't, didn't really work well for me, so... And I think that was the end of my Hemingway adventure. Yeah. But actually, you yeah. know what I must find is an amazing, I think it's in the New Yorker um, interview. It's a very famous interview. It was done with him like 40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, not long before he died, which was yeah. 60, 70. But it's an amazing, like a really one of those long form, huge New Yorker interviews. And it's a day with Hemingway. And it's in New York at the States Hotel. And he's clearly just mad as a box of frogs, but it's brilliant. I'm going to fi- try and find it and I'll send it through to you. You'll love it. I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it. <laughs> okay. That sounds really good. Yeah. I was, no, so I was reading a bit, I was reading a bit about Hemingway. Um, I'm trying to look through my notes actually for, for a bit of writing that I'm working on at the moment. And I, in order to do that, I read, the, I, re- I reread the book. No, I didn't reread it. I read the book um, that is set in the sun also rises. That's right. Have you read The Sun Also Rises about no. their about the kind of debauched trip for a group of friends, Americans who are touring around the Basque country in the early 1920s? And they go to Pamplona, where all their lives all kind of fall apart in the in the festival there. But on his way out, the lead character from The Sun Also Rises, there's a way out of this kind of vortex of, of debauchery and kind of, um, what's the word, uh, decadence that they experience in Pamplona. Um, this lost, they're all from the lost generation of young people who came through the First World War and came out the other side kind of bereft of morality to a certain extent, but also bereft of a sense of purpose and idealism and rather cynical kind of pleasure seekers, really, without any great kind of um, anything anchoring them in their lives. Broken people, really. But he, he, the lead character leaves Pamplona to head back towards Paris and on his own now, separated from his friends, he stops off somewhere in the Basque country to spend a night in a hotel. And he wakes up in the morning to find that the tour, the, the tour du Pays Basque has uh, just come through, the bicycle race. And um, he gets talking to one of the, the staff from one of the teams. And um, it, 
uh, uh, he actually quotes one of the DSs of one of the teams, Hemingway, who says, who tells him that it had been a very pleasant race and it would have been worth watching if Botechia had not abandoned it at Pamplona. Um, which is really interesting. Really and he says, and, and they have a brief conversation and Hemingway recounts how this, this man says, bicycle racing is the only sport in the world. Uh, the Tour de France is the greatest sporting event in the world, he said. Um, <laughs> and I actually checked, I think I, I sort of cross-referenced Botechia and um, his participation at the Tour du Pays Basque. And I, I <laughs> this was a lockdown project, David. I actually went uh, to the national, the online national gallery of uh, newspapers that you can access for free um, on the internet. And I found out that Ottavio Botecchia, I think in the 1924 or 1925 or six, I've got it written down somewhere. It doesn't matter. 1925 or six, Tour du Pays Basque did indeed uh, finish the stage into Pamplona at the Tour du Pays Basque and did indeed abandon the race uh, that evening and get on a train and head for Milan because he was, he had a paid appearance uh, the following day um, hmm. at an Italian criterium race. There you go. And so he just, he just stepped off and didn't finish the, the Tour du Pays Basque. That was a great detective work by you, Ned. Yeah. That's very cool. But yeah, because no, anyway. he was into his boxing and, and all those yes. sort of manly sports and bullfighting. So the fact he put cycling, road cycling up there with bullfighting and boxing is pretty boxing big boxing yeah, fan wasn't yeah, he? yeah huge i think he they used to go that kind of paris sets used to go to the bercy kind of track races and six days and stuff in the 1920s Absolutely. i used to love it i got a, i got a, yeah. an amazing painter by edward hopper um as well of the french national champion sitting in his box at the paris six days it's very cool i should put that in the show notes. i found that Ernest Hemingway the- interview i'm going to put it in the show notes so people can read it it's amazing <clears throat> two big, the two big velodromes in Paris back in the day in the twenties in Hemingway's time were the um the the Velodrome d'Hiver, which of course has its you know tragic connotations with uh, being the centre of the deportations of people towards the extermination camps in the uh, during the Nazi occupation in the Second World War. Um, but the other velodrome that no longer exists now, uh, nor does the Velodrome d'Hiver, was called the Velodrome Buffalo. Mm. And that's where I think it was to the Buffalo that uh, Hemingway would go. And also the Buffalo hosted some of the big boxing bouts of the age as well. So Hemingway was a regular. You're absolutely right at both at both of those. And that brings us back to yesterday's stage, doesn't it? Because, you know, the other day you were talking about um, Italian riders having animal-based nicknames. Oh, yes, yes. Who? The Buffalo. Is that what he's He's a Buffalo. Yeah, he's the Buffalo. Oh, that's so good. Why? Yeah. Why is I don't called? know really. I don't know, but when he crossed the line yesterday, he I went straight horns, to the fences, and there were the Buffalo Fan Club. Oh, that's just amazing! Buffalo. Yeah, so yeah, he, uh, he had the, the full Buffalo Fan Club with their massive Buffalo-based banners draped over the barriers and flags and all that sort of thing. So, so I love cycling. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so good. I, I, I'm going to get so wet today, David. Just just to finish on, mm. I'm just reading uh, as I'm talking to you really early in the morning in a kind of. The, the WhatsApp group that I've got, that the, the, my produ- producers, basically, who are kind of organizing logistics behind the scenes, how to get to the top and everything. It's now transpiring that we've got to leave the car down the bottom and I've got to get oh, no. a chairlift oh, no. to the top. And well, actually, that'll be good. I haven't got, no, I haven't got anything properly waterproof at all. I'm just going to get absolutely soaking wet. Go and find a secondhand shop and get like a 1980s ski jacket. 
Bratislavan ski what, jacket. Like you did in Beedale in Yorkshire. Yeah, st- I still got that jacket. I love it. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to find a second-hand shop, David. I'm in a shuttered village mm. in the Dolomites. Yeah. Well, I might knock do. randomly on doors and see if they understand my German, because they might do here. See if I can just beg, beg for some ski wear. You should. Oh, well. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll put all this interesting stuff in the show notes, Ned. Well, actually, That's quite just, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, actually, I'm just going to put the, um, the link to the roadbook in Chapter 3 and the New Yorker interview with Ernest Hemingway from May the 6th, 1950. That's a very good idea, David. Very good. And, uh, yeah, have a good day. Okay, bye. See you. See you.